0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Good morning, church family. Uh, I am missing all of you so much and praying for you each day that the Lord would keep you in the grip of His Grace. Uh, If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Acts chapter one? Today we are continuing in our series called Blueprint, and uh, we're looking at a very timely question, which is what is Jesus's blueprint for His church? Uh, Even in the middle of this strange uh, time that we're going through right now where we're not able to physically meet together, we want to know what Jesus wants His church. look like. And really that's what the book of Acts is all about because the book of Acts is the story of the early church, a story uh, that is still being written. In fact, you and I are helping to write that story even today. Uh, Last week we looked at the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1, how the story began. Uh, We saw how Jesus appeared to His disciples multiple times during that 40-day period between His resurrection and His ascension. Uh, We saw in verse 8 how the Lord gave a mission to His disciples and to us as His disciples as well, uh, to be His witnesses here and everywhere that He would send us. And then we saw also how He told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise, the gift that he was going to send them in just a few days, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we read in those final few verses, verses nine through 11, how Jesus ascended to the Father how the disciples uh, were staring off into the sky when two angels came and stood before them and essentially said, why do you keep staring off into the sky? This same Jesus uh, that you have seen go into heaven is going to return in the same manner uh, that you saw him go. And so let's pick up the story right there at that moment, right after the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter one, verse 12. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Verse 19, And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Pray together. Father, we do thank you today for your word, that you have spoken to us, that you have revealed yourself to us, even through this story of the very beginning of your church. And we pray, Father, today that you might speak to us through your word. Help us to hear today, Father, what you want to say to each and every one of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, we all know that this uh, global pandemic has affected all kinds of things around uh, the world. And one of the things that it has affected is uh, just the world of sports. Of uh, college athletics as well, many other sports also. I guess it remains to be seen whether it's going to have an impact on college football uh, coming in the fall. I sure hope it doesn't have an impact on that uh, because I love college football, as I know many of you do. And one of the things I love about college football are the traditions uh, that have arisen at many of the universities over the years. There are just some great traditions in college football. Uh, You think about uh, at Ohio State, how they write out Script Ohio and uh, they dot the I. Uh, you think about at Clemson where they touch Howard's Rock and run down the hill before the game. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm partial to uh, the tradition at Florida State with Chief Osceola rides on Renegade and plants that flaming spear in the middle of the field. Of course, our Gator fans have the tradition of the Gator Chomp and uh, the Hurricane uh, tradition as well of the turnover chain. There's just a lot of great traditions out there. And one of those traditions is at Texas A&M. And it's called the 12th man. If you've ever watched a Texas A&M game on TV, you might have seen uh, this picture there. Uh, The full sign there in the stadium says, home of the 12th man. And that tradition actually goes all the way back to 1922 and one of uh, the students there came down out of the stands and dressed up in a uniform and was ready if he needed to be called upon into the football game. And so today the students at Texas A&M stand up through the entirety of the football game just symbolically saying we're the 12th man, Uh, we're ready to go down on the field and join the 11 players on the field if uh, we should be called upon to do that. And you know, this story in the Bible is about the 12th man. Uh, This story in the Bible are about the 11 disciples who were left after Judas was gone. And really this whole story that we've just read is about the selection of the 12th man, the 12th apostle who would join the other 11 and bring the number of the disciples back to twelve. And that number 12 is important because you might recall in the Bible that in the Old Testament there were 12 tribes of Israel. And so the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples represent a renewed Israel, a renewed people of God who would be made up of Jews and Gentiles, would be made up of all of those who would trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, And so that's the story that we've just read. But, you know, it's easy to read a story like that and and to think, you know, what does this have to do with me? You know, here's a story about how they chose this man named Matthias. It seems like that decision has already been made. I can't really weigh in on that now. Uh, I don't know Matthias. Uh, He lived 2000 years ago. And so, again, what does this have to do with my life? Uh, But friend I would share with you, this has a lot to do with your life and with my life. Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about later is we're going to look at, at how the disciples had to try to figure out what God's will was, which one of these two men he had chosen to be the 12th man. And uh, we're going to talk about that same question in our life, how we can know today what God's will for our life truly is. Uh, but before we get there, Uh, You know, I really believe the apostles have a lot to teach us in these verses. I want us to look at three specific areas where we can learn from uh, the apostles and from their example. Uh, And the first uh, area that we can learn from them is this. They they show us how to seek the Lord, how to seek the Lord. Uh, Verse 12 tells us how the disciples left the Mount of Olives, which was the place from which Jesus ascended into heaven. Incidentally, it's the same place. The Bible says that Jesus will return to the earth when he comes the second time. And so they walked back from the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem. It says it was just a Sabbath day's journey. It was really only about a half mile or so, which was the longest that uh, they were permitted to walk on the Sabbath day of rest verse 13 says when they made it back to the city of Jerusalem, they went directly to this upper room where they were staying. And it's possible and I think even probable that this is the same upper room where they took the Lord's Supper with the Lord Jesus the night before he went to the cross. Perhaps the same upper room where Jesus appeared to the disciples on that first Easter Sunday night when he appeared to them after his resurrection. Verse 13 also includes the names of the disciples, the apostles. And with just a few changes to the order of the names, essentially Luke gives us the same list that he had given us back in his gospel in Luke chapter 6. The list here in Acts ends with uh, a man known as Judas, the son of James. He was also known as Thaddeus. And just to be clear, this is not the same Judas as Judas Iscariot. And really, that's the biggest difference in this list in Acts chapter 1. There's only 11 names here because the name of Judas Iscariot is missing. Uh, By this time, he had already betrayed uh, the Lord and was gone. And we'll talk more about his tragic story in just a few minutes. And so the 11 apostles were there in that upper room, but it wasn't just the 11 apostles. It says that there were 120 believers that were gathered there in that large upper room. And among that group were some very special individuals. It mentions the women who had followed Jesus. Doubtless, that included Mary Magdalene and Salome and others. Uh, it also mentions that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there in that upper room. You know, incidentally, this is the last time in the Bible that Mary, the mother of Jesus, shows up. And it's so beautiful to think about this one, this godly woman who was chosen to be the mother of our lord and yet here in her last appearance in the bible she doesn't so much appear as the mother of the lord but as a disciple of the lord meeting with the rest of the disciples praying because just as all of us she needed her son she needed the lord jesus to save her to forgive her of her sins and to lead her just as we all do uh, i love that verse 14 also mentions jesus's brothers being there in the upper room Uh, This is a reference to Jesus' four half-brothers who were born to Joseph and Mary uh, after Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. Uh, Mark 6 tells us the names of these four half-brothers. Their names were James and Joseph and Judas or Jude and Simon. You might remember that during Jesus's earthly ministry, his brothers uh, didn't believe in Jesus. They actually thought that Jesus might be a little little crazy, might be a little little cray-cray. They thought going around telling everybody that he was the son of God. And yet in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the people that Jesus appears to after his resurrection is his brother James. James comes to faith in the Lord. Uh, James, as we will see in the book of Acts, becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. James ends up writing the book that we know as James in the New Testament. And Jude, as well, comes to faith in the Lord and writes the book of Jude that we find in the New Testament. And yet, it's so neat that here in Acts chapter 1, for the very first time, we see Jesus' brothers identifying as followers of Christ along with their mother and along with Jesus' disciples. And so what were they all doing in this upper room uh, during these days, right after they saw Jesus ascend into heaven? Well, look again at the beginning of verse 14, what it says. It says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And so the implication is they walked off of the summit of the Mount of Olives. They walked directly back to Jerusalem, directly back to this upper room, And they spent more or less the next 10 days in prayer. Now, The Gospel of Luke tells us that they also went to the temple and were rejoicing and celebrating and praising the Lord. But when they weren't in the temple doing that, uh, they were in this upper room uh, having a prayer meeting. Uh, Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit to come. And so that's what they were doing. They were waiting. But while they were waiting, they were praying. I don't actually think that they were praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, because the Lord had promised that that was going to happen. It wasn't something they needed to pray for or ask for. It was something they needed to wait upon. Uh, But I think that they were praying because they wanted to commune with God. They wanted to commune with the Lord Jesus who had now been physically removed from their presence. I think they were also praying because they were asking God to prepare them and to equip them for this worldwide mission that God had just given to them. And so in this time of waiting, they waited on the Lord. That's how they chose to spend this waiting time. And, and, you know, as I thought about that and their example, you know, I thought about the fact we're in a waiting time right now. Uh, We've been in a waiting time for more than 40 days now and and I thought about how similar these past 40 days or so have been to the 10 days uh, that the disciples were waiting on the Lord. Uh, because of this uh, virus, because of the stay-at-home orders that we have had, again, we've all kind of been in a waiting period. We're, some of us are waiting to be able to go back to work. Uh, we're, we're waiting uh, to be able to go out of our house and do things that we normally do. We're just waiting on life to get back to normal. And, uh, and so we're doing what they were doing. We're, we're hurrying up and waiting because that's all that we can do in these days. But the question is, Uh, How will we spend this waiting time that we have been given? Because here is the deal. The Lord is giving us time to wait, not time to waste. Let me say that again. The Lord is giving us time to wait, not time to waste. Church, Jesus wants us to be spending this time the way that the apostles and that 120 believers were spending that time. He wants us to use it waiting on him. He wants us to use it in worship, wants us to use it in prayer. He wants us to use it in reading his word. Uh, he wants us to use this time well. Now, I, I know that we're all a good, and myself included, at, at making excuses. And we do this even in normal times. You know, we'll say, well, I just don't have time to read the Bible. I just don't have time to, to pray. Now, we know if we stop and think about it, that's really not a valid excuse anytime because we always spend our time on whatever we deem to be the most important. But the reality is right now, very few of us can even pretend to make that excuse in these days that we just don't have time. Uh, So many distractions have been removed from our lives uh, that right now, many of us have more time than we have ever had to spend with the Lord. But, you know, if we just trade out one distraction for another, if we just say, well, I, I can't go out and do this or that and, and I just have to stay at home. And, and, and so we just end up spending even more time on our phones or we spend even more time uh, binge watching shows on Netflix. Uh, then we can actually come out of this period of time no closer to the Lord than when we entered it. And what a tragedy that would be. Church, let's not allow that to take place in our lives. Let's not miss what God wants to say to us in these days. Let's seek the Lord. The apostles show us here how to seek the Lord. They also show us here in these verses how to trust the Lord, how to trust the Lord. Verse 15 says that sometime during that 10-day period between Jesus' ascension into heaven and when the Holy Spirit was given to the church in Acts chapter 2, sometime in those 10 days, Peter stood up and began to speak. Now, Peter was the leader, the, the spokesman of the disciples, and so he assumes that leadership role here. And this is what he said to the rest of the group in verses 16 and 17. He said, "...men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry." By and large, this was a joyful time for the disciples thinking about uh, the resurrection of Jesus and all that they had experienced. But there was one sad memory that came to their mind and it was the memory of what had happened with this man, Judas, who had been their friend, who had traveled with them for the better part of the last three years. And yet, as the Bible tells us, he became a traitor and for 30 pieces of silver, agreed to hand over the Lord Jesus to the religious leaders. But what you read here is as Peter was thinking about Judas and as Peter was reading from the Old Testament scriptures, what he came to realize is that the Old Testament scriptures actually foretold long ago what would take place with Judas. And if you look again at the beginning of verse 16, he says, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, he doesn't tell us until down in verse 20 uh, what those scriptures were that had to be fulfilled. And in verse 20, he quotes from Psalm 69, let his dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in it. And then he proceeds to quote from Psalm 109, where it says, let another take his office. And so what Peter sees is that a thousand years before his lifetime, God spoke through David words that were ultimately fulfilled in Judas. Words that were about his betrayal, words that spoke in advance about his removal from office, and even words that spoke about his being replaced. And the language that you see there in verse 16 is some of the strongest language in all the Bible about the inspiration of Scripture. He, he writes here that God spoke by the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of David. The reality is the Bible was written by more than 40 different authors over a period of 2000 years. But what this verse teaches us and other verses as well, they they teach us that when we read the words of the Bible, we're not just reading the words of the author themselves, these 40 different human authors. What we understand is that we are reading the very words of God, that God superintended the writing process of scripture so that what was written was precisely what God wanted to be written. Or as Peter put it here, that the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth or spoke through the pen of the authors of Scripture, including David. So when I say that we can trust God, one thing that I mean by that is that we can trust His Word. Now we can trust that when we are reading uh, the Bible, that we're not just reading the words of man, but we are reading the very words of God speaking to us. Now, the Bible doesn't contain the answer to every conceivable question that you might have, but we find in the Bible everything that we need for life and godliness. And we find in the Bible, at the very center of the story of the Bible, the story of God's love for us, how in spite of our sin, God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to pay for our sin and to rise again. And we read how we can have life in His name, when we trust in Jesus. You know, we live in a world where we are bombarded every day by so many different messages from so many different sources. And sometimes it's hard to know what, what the truth is. What can we trust? Friend, you can trust the Bible. You can trust the Word of God that He has given to you and to me. And we can filter everything else that we hear through the lens of the scriptures that he has given to us. And so when I say we can trust God, I mean that we can trust his word, but I also mean that we can trust his plan. You know, Peter tells us part of Judas's story in these verses. And again, what a tragic story it is. This one who who walked with Jesus who spent three years with Jesus, who, who heard what Jesus taught, who saw all of Jesus' miracles and yet in the end betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. What we read in the Bible is that after that deed was done, Judas felt so terrible that he took the 30 pieces of silver and he threw it down at the feet of the chief priest. He felt badly, but he wasn't truly repentant. And we know the Lord. Instead, he went out and he killed himself. The gospel writers tell us that he hung himself. And here in Acts, we read the rest of the story, what happened to his body after he did that. Evidently, the, the tree limb that he hung himself upon broke and his body fell, as it says in verse 18, it fell headlong and burst open in a field. In which he fell was purchased with the blood money that he had returned to the chief priests, which earned that field the name that we read here in the Bible, the field of blood. And you might hear Judas's story, and you might think, "Well, then it seems like Jesus made a mistake when he picked Judas to be one of his twelve disciples." I mean, didn't Jesus know? How could he not have known that Judas was going to? betray him. And and yet what's amazing to realize, as we've already talked about, is that God's word predicted long beforehand that Judas would betray the Lord exactly as he did. It's amazing to realize that Jesus knew even before the moment when he chose Judas to be one of his apostles, one of his disciples, he knew what Judas was going to do. Even in the upper room, the night before the cross, Jesus knew what Judas was about to do and he spoke to him those words, what you must do, do it quickly. Now to be clear, Judas was not a puppet. What he did, he did voluntarily of his own accord because of his own wickedness that was in his heart. And yet how amazing to remember that what he freely did was also a part of God's eternal plan to save us. Because through the treachery of Judas, Jesus was delivered over to his death. Through Jesus' death, our sins were paid for. And because our sins were paid for, we can be forgiven and we can live with God forever and ever. Friend, even the evil actions of evil men and women do not change God's eternal plan or keep it from coming to pass. And so friend, you can trust God's plan today. Even in the middle of this situation with this coronavirus that has taken us by surprise and it might have thrown things totally off kilter in your life. Uh, There might be some of you who are a part of this service right now and and, and this has affected your life in in dramatic ways more than I can even imagine. Perhaps you're even wondering right now uh, how you're going to be able to make ends meet, how you're going to be able to move forward with your business, with your family, with your life. Friend, I want you to hear today that you can trust God's plan for your life. If God can even use what Judas did, as a part of his plan, then God can and will use even this, even uh, this thing that we could never have planned that we would have never asked for. He can use even what's going on right now as a part of his good purpose in our lives. If we will let him and if we will trust him. The apostles show us how to trust the Lord. The apostles show us here how to seek the Lord, but they also show us how to follow the Lord. You know, after Peter quotes from the Psalms about how Judas needs to be replaced, he lays out the prerequisites, the qualifications for this 12th man who would become the 12th Apostle. You know, for pretty much any job that you uh, apply for, there's usually qualifications. It might say you need to have this degree or or that degree or this many years of experience. Uh, That's what Peter does here. He gives two qualifications here. Uh, The first qualification is that this man uh, must have been a witness to Jesus's ministry all the way from the very beginning from the baptism of John the Baptist to the end. Uh, the second requirement was that this individual had to be a witness to the resurrection. He had to have seen the risen Lord. Uh, this, this is kind of an aside, but what these two qualifications mean is that nobody today is qualified to be an apostle in this sense. Uh, now, in another sense, the word apostle just means a, a one who is sent. And in that sense, we're all apostles. Every follower of Christ is an apostle. We've all been sent out on a mission from the Lord. But in this sense, as far as having a position or an office or the title of an apostle, nobody today is qualified to be an apostle because none of us have witnessed uh, the ministry of the Lord from its beginning or seen with our physical eyes the resurrected Christ. So we do not meet the qualifications this office of an apostle was a unique office for when the church was first being built. That's why the Bible says the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What we read next is that the names of two men were put forward. Uh, Probably, we can't be sure, but probably they were the only two men who fully met the qualifications that Peter had just laid out. And verse 23 tells us their names. It says here in verse uh, 23, and they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. Now, uh, if I had to choose between one man who had three names and a man who just had one name, I would go with the one who just had one name, too, because it was easier to remember. Uh, but and in the end, it did end up choosing the one who had the one name, Matthias, but they didn't choose him for that reason. They wanted to know which one of these two men the Lord had chosen. Listen to their prayer in verses 24 and 25. They prayed and they said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. Jesus was the one who had selected the other 11 Uh, apostles. And so they were asking Jesus, even from heaven, to be the one who chose the 12th apostle. Uh, They they knew, Jesus, you've already chosen this 12th apostle just as surely as you chose the 11 of us. And so would you be so gracious to show us now who is this 12th man that you have chosen? And verse 26 says that after they prayed, they uh, drew lots In order to determine the name, Uh, probably they took two stones and wrote down the names of these two men on those stones. They probably put them in some type of a container and and shook them and then either drew out a name without looking or or perhaps let one of the stones tumble out onto the ground. And uh, they believe that God was able to show them through that process the name of the man that he had chosen now, now, we might read that and we might say, well, that, that kind of seems a little juvenile to choose that way or, or maybe even seems like a form of gambling that this is how they would determine that. And yet, in the Old Testament, this was a God-sanctioned way uh, of choosing and making a determination. In fact, in Proverbs 16, 33, uh, this is what we read about that. It. it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so they believed that the Lord would answer through this process. And so they cast lots, the lot fell on Matthias and he became the 12th man, the 12th apostle. But you might ask the question, well, what does that mean for us? Does that mean that uh, when I have a difficult decision to make between two options that I need to go out and get myself uh, some rocks or some sticks and I-, I need to cast lots in order to make uh, that determination? I believe the answer to that is no. No. Uh, Because you know what, and this is so interesting to me, uh, right here in Acts chapter 1 is the last time in the entire Bible that you read about the use of lots. Acts chapter 1 is the last time this happens, and I believe that's because of what happens in Acts chapter 2, that we're going to see next week that the Holy Spirit was given to his church. We don't need to use lots anymore to try to determine what God's will is because he has filled us with his Holy Spirit from the moment of our salvation and his Holy Spirit promises to guide us and to lead us into all truth. And so just with the last couple of minutes that, uh, that we have, uh, I just want to share a few thoughts with you on a question that's it's probably the question I get more than any other uh, folks will ask me. And here's the question. People will say to me, Pastor, how do I know God's will for my life? Uh, you might be asking that question right now. You might be saying "Well, you're saying. We shouldn't use lots like they did because we have the Holy Spirit. Uh, but, but I still don't know how, how to know what God wants me to do in a certain situation. and it may, Maybe you have a big decision that's in front of you. It's probably not to select the 12th apostle. Maybe it's a decision about uh, which college to go to or which job to take or uh, where you should move. Uh, maybe a question about who to marry. I, I don't know what that question is that is on your heart uh, right now, but it's something we all wrestle with as believers. How do we know what God's will is for our life, and, and so very quickly, I'm going to share with you five practical steps uh, that you can take as you seek to discover what God's will is for your life. Uh, here, here's the first uh, of those five steps. Immerse yourself in God's word and with God's people and on God's mission. You know, we'll talk more about this in just a moment. Uh, but knowing God's will starts with surrendering our life to the Lord Jesus Christ accepting Him into our hearts as our Savior and our Lord. That's where the path of following God's will for our life really begins. And then you want to immerse yourself in the study of God's word. You you want to surround yourself uh, with godly people, other believers who who are seeking to follow God with their life. And that's so important so that all of the decisions that we make from that moment of salvation on need to be made through a lens that is a biblical lens, a lens that is a godly lens. Uh, You know, that last part I mentioned there about God's mission. Uh, you know, even this decision in Acts chapter one was really about the mission of God. Uh, they were trying to determine who this 12th uh, apostle would be. That would be a part of this mission uh, of taking the gospel into all the world. And you know what? God has given us a mission too. He, he has called us to be on mission and we should be all about God's mission. And so that lens of the mission of God needs to be a lens through which we make major decisions in our Life. You know, just to get really practical on this for just a moment, to speak to uh, college students for just a minute. If you're a, a graduating college student and you're wondering right now uh, about what, what is that first job that I need to take uh, out of, of college, uh, maybe to think about uh, not making that selection based on where you want to live or, or based on where you might make the most money, but maybe making that selection based on where I can be a part of the mission of God in the world. Uh, where can I go maybe to be a part of a church plant and uh, maybe to be a part of a mission work somewhere else in the world. Where can I go uh, where I can use my life, even the next couple years of my life in the most strategic way for the glory and the mission of God on the earth. You wanna talk about a countercultural way to live. Uh, th- that's a way to make a decision that will not make sense to your lost friends who don't know Christ. And yet this is the lens through which God would have us make decisions. Here's number two, second step. Make sure that you are obeying what God has already told you. I know that there are specific decisions that we all need to make in life. Uh, There are decisions we're not going to find a chapter and a verse for in the Word of God. But I always tell folks, I believe that 95% of God's will for our life is already found in the Word of God. It's the same for you as it is for me. There's so much of God's will for our life that we already know. We know that his will is for us to trust Christ. His will is for us to follow him and to be baptized, to be a part of a local church. His will for us uh, is that we would live to make disciples, that we would live holy lives and on and on it goes. And so what we don't want to do is this. What we don't want to do is is be asking God, God, would you please show me uh, what I need to do with this decision in my life when in the rest of our life we have no regard at all for what God has already told us to do. And what we need to do is to begin by obeying what God has already said and then look for his leading and his direction in the decision that's in front of us. And then when it comes to that specific decision, I agree with the next three simple steps that I first learned from teacher Jim Shaddix. We need to, number three, we need to do our homework. And number four, we need to ask God. And Number five, we need to make a decision and we need to trust him. And we need to do our homework on the decision that's in front of us. It may be the more that we dig into that, it becomes clear that only one of those choices is one that will honor the Lord. And it may be that as we dig into that, that that both of those paths are are paths that would please the Lord. We we can't decide between them. That's actually the situation in Acts chapter 1, wasn't it? Both of these men fit the qualifications. They didn't know which one the Lord had chosen. And so then we need to pray. We need to take this matter to the Lord and trust that he will give us wisdom when we ask him for his wisdom. And then after we have prayed and sought the Lord and perhaps godly counsel, if he leads us to, to do that, well, then we need to make a decision and we need to trust him. And we don't need to live in fear and and, and worry, but we can trust that when we are seeking after God, that he is leading us in his path. You say, well, how can I know that? Well, there's a promise in the word of God. I want you to look at these words from Proverbs chapter three. This is a great passage for, especially for young people, but really for every single one of us. And I wanna close with these words of scripture. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you today that Father, during these days that you have given us, days of waiting, that you've given us days not to waste, but days to wait on you. And so, God, in these days, like the apostles, Father, would we be seeking you? God, would you find us seeking your face or pressing in to our relationship with you? Thank you, God, that we can trust you. No matter what is going on in our world, we can trust your word. We can trust your plan for the world and for our life. God, help us to follow you. Father, every decision that's before us, Help us to bring it to you and God to claim your promise that if we trust in you with all of our heart that if we don't lean on our own understanding, but God, we acknowledge you that you will direct our paths in a way that is pleasing in your sight. God, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.